Haggai chapter 1. And the theme of the book becomes the theme of our sermon this morning. Consider your ways. Just a brief review. If you weren't with us last time to have a placement of this book in the timeline, remember that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, taken captives. For 70 years, God's people would be exiles in the land of Babylon. Then, as was prophesied several hundred years before by Isaiah, God raised up Cyrus, who formed a coalition of the Medes and the Persians, and together they were strong enough to overthrow Babylon. Cyrus decrees that all captive peoples, including the Jews, could return to their homelands. And specifically to the Jews, he grants permission and funding for them to rebuild the temple. These Jews, as it says in Ezra, whose hearts were stirred up for this cause, returned to Jerusalem in 536 B.C., and in the immediate months of their return, they lay the foundation for the temple. But then some opposition from without, and what has to be labeled as apathy from within, causes that temple construction project to come to a halt. That initial momentum dies away. And then there's 15 years of nothing. Nothing, at least, that reveals spiritual desire. Nothing that revealed the same passion that led them on this hundred miles, hundreds of miles of journey back to Jerusalem that led them to immediately build an altar. Before they had homes to live in or a temple foundation, they built an altar and they worshiped. But that kind of passion seemed to have died. And we have 15 years of apathy, 15 years of resignation to mediocrity in the Christian life. Fifteen years later, God raises up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to deliver a message to his people. We could read about it in Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Their prophecy came to the people, and then we read later in Ezra, that the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes the king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Fifteen years of apathy, four months of preaching by Haggai and Zechariah, and without pause, the temple is finished in four years. This remarkable revival begs the question, 
What did these prophets say that could motivate people to, to emerge from this lethargy of 15 years of doing nothing of spiritual fervor to suddenly a four-year sprint to finish this temple project? What is the message that they preached? Well, in God's providence, we have the message of Haggai and the message of Zechariah to know something of what was said. And from Haggai, we know that the prevailing message was simple. Haggai 1 and verse 5, consider your ways. Haggai 1 and verse 7, consider your ways. Chapter 2 and verse 15, consider from this day onward. Verse 18, consider from this day onward. It's as if Haggai was awakening the people. We could say he was ringing the bell. The whole community of God's people was being alerted that something was up. They were being summoned to engage their minds and actually take a look at their lives and see if they can genuinely say, I'm seeking first the kingdom. Because it sure didn't look like it. Haggai comes with a pretty stark and stern message. Zechariah is going to be kindler and gentler in some ways. Haggai is brief, but not unkind. It's stark, but it's, it's fitting. We don't need lots of gushing words and pleading and begging. Just a simple message. Consider your ways. And he confronts the years of apathy with this strong rebuke. Your priorities are messed up. Consider your ways. Set your heart on your ways and see if, see if that's a fitting place for a heart that once said, we want to worship, we want to rebuild the temple. Now set your heart on your ways and see if it's fitting. Are your priorities right? Give serious thought to what you're doing with your life. Some of you are young. You're 8, 9, 10 years old, 14, 15, 16. You almost feel like you're entitled to skirt this question. You don't even have to ask, what am I doing with my life? You kind of feel like it's laid out for you. Well, it may be with schoolwork and responsibility to live under your parents' authority. But Haggai's not really talking about evaluate your life based on how much money you're making or what your vocation's going to be. He's saying, where is your heart aimed? Because that's going to take you somewhere. Consider your ways. Others of us could be much older and think we've kind of settled into what our lives are supposed to be. But what if the life you're living right now is nothing like what God wants it to be? Could we even entertain massive overhaul? Would that be too risky? Haggai says, consider your ways. And this is the question that I want us to work on this morning. What does it look like to consider your ways? 
Because we could all go home very pensive and be thinking deep thoughts about priorities and, and the kingdom of God. But what, what does that mean for the daily schedule and the days of this week? There are some avenues of thought that I want us to travel in order to think through our priorities this morning. In order to do that, let's just make sure we know the story of chapter 1. We'll walk through it and then make some applications with the notes that you have before you. It's the second year of Darius the king. The people return to Jerusalem and they settle in. If we could read Ezra with this, we'd see the altar that was made for sacrifice We'd see them scattering out through the rubble of Jerusalem and they begin finding shelter and making homes. They lay the foundation of the temple and then everything stalls out. So when we come to verse 2 of Haggai, they've returned, laid the foundation. 15 years have gone by where no real zeal for God has been evident. And so the voice of the Lord comes. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We'll look at that in a moment. That's convenient. I don't know that there's any truth to it. It works. It makes them feel good about what they're doing. But God's observation there has a point to it. Not a lesson to it, but a point. He's beginning to prick at the hearts of his people here. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. The first time they hear this message, consider your ways, it's in a very tangible illustration. They are living in houses, finished and remodeled, and improving still, and yet they're saying, we we just don't have time. It's not the right time to build God's house. So God's question is, wait a minute, You, you have time to do all this for yourselves, but you don't have time for anything of my agenda, my will. You you see the value of having a place for your family, but you don't see any value in the worship of God. It's as if a lawyer in a courtroom would say, let me just make sure I have this clear. Time for you, money for you, no time for God, no money for God. You could cross-examine that, but it sure seems like that's the indictment on this people. Verse 6, the prophet says, as the voice of the Lord, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I think all of these metaphors are helping us get to the heart of futility. The dissatisfaction, the the lack of 
of peace that these people have. I think at first, in verse 6 here, they have food. They have plenty to drink. They have plenty of clothes. They're, they're making money, hand over fist, and they put it into their bag, but it just seems like at the end of the day, it just didn't feel like it was enough. I've, I've probably mentioned this years before, but this week I came across this article about quarterbacks in football. If you don't know what a quarterback is, forgive me for just a brief aside here. But it was about great quarterbacks who win a lot and then have to retire. And in my day, it was the great Joe Montana of the San Francisco 49ers. And really, the article was about him. It was about how his family and his friends had to help him because they said after, after retiring, it was like falling off a cliff, they described. And you are and you have nothing. He said he took up flying. He took up business. He makes millions of dollars in, in investment funds. And yet his wife has to remind him, you have four kids who love you. We're in love. You have all the money you need in the bank. And yet his wife said, but he's always looking for the next thing. Strangely, I read that article and linked right to it was a 2005 interview with Tom Brady, who at that time had won three Super Bowls. And he said something like this. People tell me, Tom, you've, you've reached... The dream. You've accomplished all your goals. What else is there? And the reporter was smiling. He said, yeah, what else is there? And Tom Brady said, I don't know. I'm 27 years old and I've done everything I thought I ever wanted to do. There must be something more to life. And the reporter asked, what is it? And Tom Brady repeated it twice. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You see, whether it's a football player or a parent raising kids or a pastor planning a church, whatever occupation you may have, we can have food to eat. We can have friends to gather at our homes. We can have our favorite outfits, our favorite vacations and hobbies and pastimes. We might have some money in the bank. You might have a few investments. But mark these words in verse 6. You will never have enough. Because those things cannot satisfy. These people built their lives on those things. That would be the pinnacle no longer exiles, no longer the outcasts, no longer the poor, no longer the slaves, no longer second-class citizens. We're going to be somebody again. So we're going to build our homes and we're going to make our money and we're going to prove that we're somebody. God says that'll, that'll never satisfy. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It seems like they weren't learning the lesson just from the futility of pursuit. So now God's going to shut down the faucet, so to speak. And God says, verse 9, You looked for much and behold it came to little. 
When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You hear those words, and you don't need a lot of preaching to unfold the the danger of misplaced priorities. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, on the wine, on the oil, on all the ground brings forth. What is a drought on man? What is a drought on beast and on all their labors? It's an added level of futility. God, in his kindness, is going to use dissatisfaction, that lack of fulfillment, to turn his people to the only thing that truly satisfies. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. They just knocked it out, got the job done. And how did it happen? They heard this message the questions, the accusations of the Lord. He forced them to look at their lives, their priorities, their investment of time and energy. He forced them to see their selfishness, their apathy. And he handed them futility, disappointment, frustration, dissatisfaction. And the result, verse 12, was revival. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, they feared the Lord, and ultimately they built the house of the Lord. Consider your ways. So we take in this whole story, can we find any helps for what it would look like for us to evaluate our priorities, our ways? I'm going to suggest six from our text. We begin in verse 2 when the Lord says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The first way you could consider your ways is stop trying to justify your apathy. You likely know what it is. Others probably do as well. Stop trying to make it sound like you've got this great plan and not serving the Lord with your whole heart is part of it. And we're supposed to think that's a good idea. The time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. First of all, that's just not true. That is not true. They are rewriting history. They came hundreds of miles saying, after 70 years, it's time for us to go back and rebuild the temple. This is what Isaiah spoke of when he 
predicted that God would raise up Cyrus multiple times in Isaiah. One of them in Isaiah 44, God speaking of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose saying, Jerusalem shall be built and of the temple, the foundation shall be laid. The plan was always for the people to go back and rebuild. In Ezra chapter one, the book begins with that story. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, so that it would be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. We have a pagan king saying, it's time to build, who wants to go? And all of God's people say, let's do that. Then they get there and things get a little tough and suddenly, you know, I, I, I don't think it's time to build the house of the Lord. You know, someday I'd like to really consider maybe studying or preparing a little bit more for ministry training, or maybe I just need to get better at counseling, or maybe I could do something on a mission field, but you know, I think I need to do this first. And we have all of our reasons for why we can't invest money, we can't give time, we can't serve, I'm not the right person to help that person in need. We come up with all these ideas that may even have some semblance of, see, can't you see the contradiction? I have this responsibility. I can't do that. Well, just start from scratch. And remember, God's not going to give you contradicting commands. He might give you commands that stretch you a little, that ask you to do something you've never considered before. But be very careful about waxing eloquent about why you're not going to do something that sure looks like the right thing to do. Challenge your own ideas. They're not always true. Stop trying to sound reasonable when the reality is you're wasting time. God's time that he's given to you to use for him. And you know, it also seems like these people thought that if God wanted them to build a temple, he would have made it easier for them. They get back there and they start laying the foundation and then all these surrounding peoples start coming and opposing the work. They start saying, where's your paperwork for this? And has Cyrus really said that? And we need to check on this. And it wasn't easy. Well... If we're not careful, we back away from things that seem hard. And we'll excuse ourselves by saying, well, this must not be God's will. Because look at the opposition. This was hard. Well, if God prompts you to speak truth to somebody, it might be awkward, uncomfortable, or hard. But what are you going to do? Are you not going to obey God? Because it's hard? Listen, we, 
we need to be ready to do hard things in the Christian life. It's not always easy. The very next generation in this story would rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they would do it with a trowel in one hand, putting mortar on the bricks and a sword in the other hand. That's how close the enemy would get. So the reality is it wasn't going to be easy. It looks great because God ordained Cyrus to make it start pretty easily. Go ahead. Here's permission and here's funds to do it. Here's all the old temple vessels. Take them back with you. Looks great. And then they get there and things start getting a little tough. And they shut down. Just remember, standing for what God has said or doing what God has said to do will not always be easy. And we can't just rewrite the instructions. We can't reinterpret God's word. He said, build a temple. And you're saying, I don't know if it's time to build a temple. The church has battled this in our culture, especially in these last decades. We used to be real strong on here's what God says about gender and marriage. But a lot of churches then started thinking, well, but I, I know somebody and, and they say they love the Lord and, and yet they're involved in this homosexual relationship and they're a really good person and suddenly we take the hardship, the awkwardness and instead of facing that head on, we'll just redefine God's word to us. Listen, I've not been invited to a wedding of a same-sex wedding. Maybe you have. Or maybe you will be. And suddenly we feel all this angst of, but they're really good people and I, and I want to be loving. And You can be loving. And they may be people you can get along with just fine. But you must stand for truth when it's hard. What are we going to do when times get hard? Because they are. It's getting there. Maybe another generation or two. Maybe not. And... American Christianity will be a paradox. We're going to have to just get used to being Christians and standing for what is true in the face of opposition. Learn from these people and, and stop trying to justify our apathy or our timidity, our cowardice. Number two, Examine closely the evidence of your priorities. Verses 3 and 4, the word of the Lord comes through Haggai the prophet with an observation. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Just take a little walk. He could take any of the families, take them from their house, let's just walk around the block. Let's walk by the old foundation, overgrown now with shrubs and discarded materials because we've built our homes, and yet this home is in ruins, God's house. Let's take that walk, and let's just evaluate the evidence of our priorities. I don't want us to have in our notes, the point is evaluate your priorities, because cerebrally, in theory, we could all go home and evaluate our priorities. Yeah, I think, they're in, I think they're in line. 
but we could deceive ourselves there. So let's stick with the facts. Let's evaluate the evidence of our priorities. Because it won't lie. We will do in this coming week what we think is important. And we might not have time to bring our kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're a hassle. But just get them to bed so I can have some peace. There's the danger. When we actually look at the evidence, it tells us, oh, now I see what I'm going after. Now I see what's most important. So, granted, we we probably all have our priorities in the right order if we have to articulate them, but is it being fleshed out that way? In our text, the evidence was clear. They had time, energy, resources, and desire to build houses for themselves. They spent 15 years doing that. But the house of God was in ruins still. So what is your life communicating to your spouse, to your kids, to your neighbors, to the people that know you? What is your life communicating about the value of God to you? How do they know this God is really important to me? How is that being seen? We don't want our Christian life to be extracurricular. I've got all the stuff I've got to get done, and if I do that well, I'll have time to add Christianity at the end of the day. If you keep your grades up, you can go out for football, you know, your parents tell you. But it's extracurricular. It's not most important. You have to have this first. Christianity, our faith, can't be extracurricular. And that's exactly what was unfolding with God's people. Examine closely the evidence of your priorities. Number three, what does it look like to consider our ways? Recognize the cause of your dissatisfaction. We are all going to taste dissatisfaction at times. We would do ourselves a favor by examining the cause of that dissatisfaction. Why do I feel frustrated right now? Why do I feel dissatisfied or unfulfilled? Because the Lord highlights that for them in verse 6 and then in verses 9, 10, and 11. This pursuit, 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 and yet never feeling like the investment paid off. What's the cause of that dissatisfaction? We should know from the scriptures that a self-serving life is a self-defeating life. You're working against yourself when you put self number one. It's paradoxical, it is. But it's what God says. Whoever will save his life and try to keep it all together and I want to get everything I can get is in the process of losing it. But whoever loses his life says, I can invest that for the gospel or for the name of Christ. That's the one who saves his life. You can read it in Mark. It just doesn't seem to make sense. If I keep it, I lose it. And if I lay it down, I gain it. 
But that's the lesson that these people were learning. And it comes to us not in that pithy saying, but it comes to us in a real-life example. They were trying to keep. They were trying to make money, invest, save, and have. And it was as if they were putting that money into the bag with a hole in the bottom. And they walk home, and they get home, and they're like, look at the prosperity. What didn't satisfy. It didn't feel as good as I thought it would. Consider your ways. Recognize the cause of this dissatisfaction. Temporal, selfish pursuits cannot satisfy. They will degenerate into what we have come to call the rat race. The endless pursuit. And mark those words from verse 6. Never enough. Don't, don't stay as that people of God. Consumed with getting everything in place and needing something more before it's time to get serious for God because it'll never work. Oh, you might have a lot more than someone else, but it'll never be enough. When Tom Brady had those three rings in that interview, the interviewer asked him, which is your favorite one? And he shrugged and smiled and said, the next one. Because it doesn't matter. If he had three, four, five, six, seven, there's always the pursuit of something more. It won't satisfy. Speaking to the dissatisfaction of misguided priorities, C.S. Lewis famously wrote, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. These people thought, let's start here. After all, this is where God has put us and we need to have homes to live in, right? So let, let's, let's aim for earth. And they lost everything. Until the prophet said, consider your ways. Seek first the kingdom and all those other things will be added to you. So recognize the cause of your dissatisfaction. It'll be telling you something about your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Number four, consider your ways by taking practical steps of worshipful obedience. Look at verse eight. It's one of the few instructions of what to do. What you shouldn't do is be building your own house. Your priorities are wrong. What do you want us to do, Haggai? Verse 8, three instructions. Go up to the hills. Number two, bring wood. Number three, build the house. I think verses like this are instructive for our parenting. They, they don't need a paragraph. They don't, they don't need a Gettysburg address well-crafted and written to communicate, clean your room. <laughs> Learn a message from Haggai. You, you know, there, I get it. There are times to sit down and have real meaningful conversations and explain the whys and the hows. Other times, go up in the woods, cut down a tree, drag it down here, and make it into a building. Haggai's like, what, 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 do, you, what do you want me to tell you? Build the house. It's that simple. But when we look at it, that doesn't sound all that spiritual. 
Like we were thinking like repentance, sackcloth, and ashes would be more fitting. But that's included here. Haggai has just jumped to the fruit of a heart that has encountered God. And they realize I've treasured myself more than I've treasured him. What do I do? Yes, your heart is changing now. You're repenting. But what the next steps would be would be practical steps of worship. You see, going up into the woods, bringing wood and building a house, God says, is so that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified. The pleasure of God and the glory of God are at stake in our practical choice to maybe set aside our fiction novel, which is no problem in and of itself, and actually read God's book to me. Or to turn off that TV series that I'm following along with and invest in in something else that's more kingdom-focused. Not because that was bad and I could never do it, but because I have to prioritize. And suddenly, really practical things, like turning off with the remote, or setting down the magazine, become steps toward the pleasure of God and His glory. Practical steps of worshipful obedience. When we talk priorities, if we're serious, something must change in the 24 hours of time slots we have in a day if we're going to do it differently than last week. What is that real practical change? And it's not about getting rid of all the bad stuff and keeping the good. It's about arranging, oftentimes, a lot of good, a lot of gifts, a lot of things that are made to be enjoyed, but only when forefront in our minds is the pleasure of God and his glory. Fight to articulate the practical change in today and tomorrow and the next day that will force priorities into your life. Don't be content with, yeah, I need, to, I need to do better. I need to rearrange my priorities. That is not the message. It's consider your ways and go up in the woods, get trees and build. Put it into practice. What are you going to change? Number five, renew your mind with what God says. Renew your mind. In our text, we read over and over again, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came, or the Lord of the host, Lord of hosts says. So more than a dozen times in just two chapters, 15 verses in the first, 23 in the second, 38 verses, and a third of them are referencing, this is what God says, remember what God says. And already in our text, verse two, thus says the Lord, Verse 3, the word of the Lord came. Verse 5, thus says the Lord. Verse 7, thus says the Lord. Verse 12, the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai as the Lord sent him. And the result, the people feared the Lord. They realized who it is that is speaking. And then don't miss verse 13. 
in, in this change of heart, this rearranging of priorities, considering their ways, the first thing they hear from God is not, it's about time, it's, I am with you. In other words, this is the way it's supposed to be. God's saying, I didn't wander off into apathy, you did. Return, consider your ways. Worship in simple acts of obedience and arranging priorities. And there God is, faithful, new morning mercies, greeting his people at their return, saying, I am with you. Let's not worry about opposition to this building project. I am with you. Let's not worry about how much you can stockpile and goods and clothing so that you're filled and you're not hungry, thirsty, cold. Because I'm with you. You're okay. You have enough if I am with you. You'll never have enough if you're not hearing that from God. The great need of God's people is to hear him and thus to know him. As he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. But God's people languish when they don't hear from God through his word. It's true of individuals, it's true of families, it's true of churches, it's true of denominations. Examples abound. When we close this book, we shrivel up. We need to hear what God says. Their minds were renewed. They went to the woods, they cut down trees, and they built because the battle was won in their minds. They heard what God said, and they said, what God says is most important to me. Consider your ways. Check them by the compass of God's word. Finally, consider your ways by yielding to the Spirit's leading to do kingdom work. Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord. In verse 15, they finished it. Yield to the Spirit's leading to do. God stirred them up to work, to hike into the woods, to cut down lumber, to build the temple, to do. Paul says this in Philippians 2, that we should be busy working out our salvation, showing that we're serious about this. Why? Because God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. God's stirring us up, and it's evident because we're doing, just like Haggai. So it says the leaders were stirred up. Some of these leaders, think of their position, 15 years of being in charge of what? 15 years of being in charge of apathy. Great job, guys. Some of these leaders had to say, you know what? We, we should have set the course. We should have challenged people to more. We should have equipped them to make this happen. We need to do better. The Spirit's stirring us up. We need to do. Some dads had to say, listen, kids, I've dropped the ball. I haven't demonstrated for 15 years a love for God is supreme. But that's going to change. We're not living that way anymore. We're still going to receive all the good gifts God's given us, bringing us back to the land. 
but you're going to help dad and we're going to drag some lumber and we're going to get this house of God built. I'm done modeling boredom with God. Some moms maybe had to say, listen, husband, family, I kept clamoring for a nicer, bigger home. I wanted it paneled and lined and all set and remodeled. I valued that beauty. I didn't value the beauty of God who rescued us. But that's going to change. Oh, we don't have to live in the poorhouse. We don't have to eat rice and beans all the time. But our standard of beauty is going to start with God. Something's got to change. God stirred them up to do. So consider your ways. God has called you not to build a physical temple. God hasn't even called us to build a a physical building. This isn't about a building project. This is about God's church. Do we value the pleasure of God and the glory of God so that we will give our lives in the service of this God? And that will be manifest in the hours of your day, in the days of your week, starting now. So, Heavenly Father, show us by this ancient challenge to your people that we too need to be challenged to consider our ways, to evaluate our priorities, to seek first your kingdom, to long for your smile on us, to see your pleasure, and to live for your glory. And as we do this, Lord, would you satisfy us in a way that this world can never satisfy us. As the psalmist said in Psalm 90, that you would satisfy us in the morning. Lord, before this day passes, would you give us a taste of satisfaction in seeking you first? This we pray so that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be glorified in us as your people, your church who exist because of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.